Amen. You guys should look, I don't know if I'm on yet, Samuel. You guys should look more well-rested today, right? You got that extra hour of sleep. Everybody likes daylight saving time in November. Not so much in the spring. It's so good to worship with you all today. Today's sermon is entitled, God's in the Camp. And we're going to be looking at 1 Samuel chapter 4. Um, we like to sing songs like, The Battle Belongs to the Lord, or God Fights Our Battles. And it's true that the battle does belong to the Lord, and He does want to fight our battles. But when you're dealing with the Lord, there's certain rules of engagement. There's certain rules that you have to follow. Um, Israel's history is full of battles. Battles that they've won, and battles that they've lost. And the ones that they've lost has been because they've done it their own way without going according to God's design and purpose. So with that in mind, let's look at 1 Samuel chapter 4 today. It says, And Samuel's words went out to all the people of Israel. At that time, Israel was at war with the Philistines. The Israelite army was camped near Ebenezer, and the Philistines were at Aphek. The Philistines attacked and defeated the army of Israel, killing 4,000 men. After the battle was over, the troops retreated to their camp, and the elders asked, of Israel asked, Why did the Lord allow us to be defeated by the Philistines? Then they said, Let's bring the Ark of the Covenant of the Lord from Shiloh. If we carry it into battle with us, it will save us from our enemies. So they sent the men to Shiloh to bring the Ark of the Covenant of the Lord of heaven's armies, who was enthroned between the cherubim. Hophni and Phinehas, the sons of Eli, were also there with the Ark of the Covenant of God. And when all the Israelites saw the Ark of the Covenant of the Lord coming into the camp, their shout of joy was so loud that it made the ground shake. Got a question I want to ask you this morning. How come when things go wrong in our life, in which we never involve God, do we tend to blame our hurt and losses on Him? What, another way of saying that is, how can we blame God when he had nothing to do with the process? You see, in this passage, we see that the Israelites lose a battle to the Philistines. They lose 4,000 men. That's a huge loss, right? 4,000 people. And we're not talking machine guns here. We're talking old school military. 4,000 people. And when you lose that badly, somebody has to be blamed. And who do they blame? Why did the Lord allow us to be defeated by the Philistine people? <laughs> I can imagine them saying to themselves, I thought God fights our battles. I mean, we're his people. He rescued us from Egypt. We're living in the promised land. We're living out the promises and his faithfulness. So, so what's this deal, God? We're supposed to win all these battles. And so the point being, you can't blame God when God has nothing to do with it. You cannot blame God for the wreckage in your life, for the lost battles, when he's had nothing to do with it. I mean, chapter 3 ends, and chapter 4 begins with us being told that Samuel hears the voice of God. Samuel knows the voice of God, what he says comes true, and everybody that goes to him knows that he is a faithful servant of God. And so verse 1 begins saying that Samuel's words went out to all the people of Israel, right? But after verse 1, is Samuel mentioned again? No. So they don't go to the guy that they know is hearing from God. They just basically ask the question, Hey, 
why did God cause us to lose this battle? And instead of reflecting on why uh, they didn't involve God in their battle plan, instead of seeking his face and surrendering to him and his will, they decide that if God's not going to help them, that they're going to make God help them and get the Ark of the Covenant and bring it into battle. Now, a little national history here. Prior to the cross, the worship was based on a tabernacle. And inside the tabernacle was this wooden box that was overlaid in gold. And it was filled with different things like the Ten Commandments and manna. And I think it was Moses' budding rod or Aaron's budding rod. And they were all put in this wooden box and sealed. And this this ark, we know it as the Ark of the Covenant, was where God's presence dwelt. There was two angels, golden angels, on top of this ark, and his presence was supposed to dwell between the two angels. Okay? And it was, it was something that was very special. It was created uh, there at Mount Sinai. It was, it was brought uh, across those 40 years in the desert. It was the centerpiece of their worship. And so everybody in Israel knew that's where God's presence was. So they said, let's bring the ark into the battlefield. Let's get the two high priests to join us, Hophni and Phinehas. So you have a wicked people not seeking God's face. You have an unrepentant and sinful priesthood as their leadership and their mediators. Instead of Samuel, what could go wrong, right? God's presence, a sinful people, and sinful religious leaders. Sounds like a recipe for disaster, doesn't it? Well, they're so assured of their victory that their screams and their yells shake the ground. Shake the ground. Can you imagine that? I mean, I've heard the kids yell in this school and they get excited and it hurts, you know, it reaches a decibel level uh, that that it it, it makes you feel like, you know, the walls are going to come crashing in. But yeah, it literally shakes the ground. So be careful. Be careful. There's a huge warning here, guys. If you're in a place where the worship of God is powerful and strong, and yet there's sin in the camp, and God's presence shows up, it's not going to be what you want it to be. He's going to show up to clean house. And we've seen it time and again in the modern church. Mega churches like Mars Hill or Hillsong or Crystal Cathedral have fallen in spite of there being people there in mass. In spite of the fact that the worship and presentation is professional, the speaker's dynamic. But without repentance from sin, the celebration is a show and destruction is imminent. And so that's why as a church, our emphasis continuously is not on uh, an emphasis on being the best possible production possible, We care about your heart. We want lives that are walking in faithfulness to God. Because you can have cheers that shake the ground and have no real relationship with God. Let's continue to read. Verses 6 through 9. What's going on? The Philistines asked. What's all the shouting about in the Hebrew camp? When they were told it was because the ark of the Lord had arrived, they panicked. The gods have come into their camp, they cried. This is a disaster. We have never had to face anything like this before. Help! (laughs) Who can save us from these mighty gods of Israel? They are the same gods who destroyed the Egyptians with plagues when Israel was in the wilderness. 
Fight as never before, Philistines. If you don't, we will become the Hebrew slave, slaves just as they have been ours. Stand up like men and fight. The Israelites are assured of their victory, and their enemies are assured of their victory. If the ground's shaking because of a celebration being so strong, after they lose 4,000 men in battle, they must have some sort of massive weapon, right? And when the news reaches them that it's the Ark of the Covenant, they panic. They panic. The gods have come into their camp. Who can save us from the mighty gods of Israel? These are the same gods who destroyed the Egyptians. Do you see a problem with their statements? How many gods do the Israelites have? One. What's the first commandment? You're to love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. Love the Lord your God. The Lord is one. You shall have no other gods before me. So obviously the Israelites have not been living in such a way that the people around them know about Yahweh God. They're confused. Their lives, their character, their practice don't match up with the name of God that they carry. So I would say the Philistines are dead wrong. There is not gods of the Israelites. There's a God of the Israelites. But the Philistines are dead right because there are gods in the enemy camp. What do I mean by this? Every Israelite who does what they want to and claims to follow God is only fooling themselves. When you do not follow God's standard for right or wrong, truth or purpose, and do whatever you want to, you are a God unto yourself. It's a fact of life. There's only two God possible places of worship in life. Yahweh God or foreign gods. Idolatry gods. And when you put yourself above God, when you decide for yourself, when you don't follow his purpose and plan, you don't seek his guidance, you say, I'll figure it out myself, or I'll pick and choose what I want to believe, and I'll go my own direction, you are a God unto yourself. So the Israelite camp was full of false gods. A bunch of people claiming God they truly don't serve. They're only serving themselves. And so these Philistines, who in their mind are facing inevitable death, are saying, we're going to fight anyway. We're going to fight so we don't end up slaves of the Israelites. We're going to fight them. It seems impossible. They've got the Ark of the Covenant. You know, and they know the stories. <laughs> they know the stories. They con- This gods conquered the Egyptians, sent plagues on them. The- We're messing with something bigger than ourselves, but we don't have a choice. Let's fight this out. Verses 10 and 11. So the Philistines fought desperately, and Israel was defeated again. The slaughter was great. 30,000 Israelite soldiers died that day. A lot more than 4,000. The survivors turned and fled to their tents. The ark of God was captured, and Hophni and Phinehas, the two sons of Eli, were killed. God cannot be manipulated, fooled, or controlled. You can claim that God fights your battles, but if there's anything that you learn about God as you seek to follow Him, He fights His battles. And it's your choice whether to be on His team or not. If you remember, outside the walls of Jericho, the first army that Joshua faced was not 
the people of Jericho, it was the commander of the army of the Lord. And he asked him, whose side are you on? Ours are our enemies. And you know what the angel said? Neither. I'm on God's side. I, I'm not for you or against you. You've got to choose to be with us. If you choose to be with us, then we'll fight your battles and you can worship and the walls will come down. So, we don't control him. He's holy. He's other. He's outside of our manipulation. So if we want to be on the winning side, we need to seek his face in daily surrender. Allowing him to design our life for us. When we seek to fool people and manipulate God, our losses in life become far worse. Samuel will say later on in this book, man looks at the outside, but God looks at the heart. Well, actually, God says that to Samuel. And I think that's the theme of the entire book of 1 Samuel. Because again and again, we'll see that man can be fooled, but God cannot be fooled. Man looks at the outside and sings things as great. When we get to Saul, we're going we're gonna to realize that Saul was the best looking, it literally says he was the best looking guy in Israel, a head taller than everybody else. If anybody looked like a king, it was Saul, and, and his heart wasn't right. And then Samuel, when God tells Samuel this, it's when he's looking for King David and he's the shepherd out in the field that got overlooked. But the theme of the entire book is appearances don't matter to God. He doesn't care about lights. He doesn't care about dynamic speaking. He doesn't care about a show. He wants genuine faith and relationship. He wants us to be on our knees in a love relationship with him, seeking his face and following his plan. 12 through 22. A man from the tribe of Benjamin ran from the battlefield and arrived at Shiloh later that same day. He had torn his clothes and put dust on his head to show his grief. Eli was waiting beside the road to hear the news of the battle, for his heart trembled for the safety of the ark of God. When the messenger arrived and told what had happened, an outcry resounded through the town. What is all that noise about? Asked, Eli asked. The messenger rushed over to Eli, who was 98 years old and blind. He said to Eli, I have just come from the battlefield. I was there this very day. What happened, my son? Eli demanded. Israel has been defeated by the Philistines, the messenger replied. The people have been slaughtered, and your two sons, Hophni and Phinehas, were also killed, and the ark of God has been captured. When the messenger mentioned what had happened to the ark of God, Eli fell backwards from his seat beside the gate. He broke his neck and died, for he was old and overweight. He had been Israel's judge for 40 years. Eli's daughter-in-law, the wife of Phinehas, was pregnant and near her time of delivery. When she heard the ark of God had been captured and that her father-in-law and husband were dead, she went into labor and gave birth. She died in childbirth, but before she passed away, the midwives tried to encourage her. Don't be afraid, they asked. You have a baby boy. But she did not answer or pay attention to them. She named the child Ichabod, which means, where is the glory? For she said, Israel's glory is gone. She named him this because the ark of God had been captured and because her father-in-law and husband were dead. Then she said, the glory has departed from Israel, for the ark of God has been captured. Think of the worst news you could possibly get today and multiply it by a thousand. I'm not, being over, I'm not over-exaggerating here. 
it, it would be hard to touch the heaviness of this moment. Not only did they lose a terrible battle from an invading foe, not only were they going to be slaves of those that just conquered them and rule over them, but what they lost is the presence of God. And that is exactly what happened when the ark was captured. When God's presence is lost, reality finally sets in. They can no longer fool themselves or play the game. Their religious leaders are dead because of their sin. There probably isn't a household that hasn't lost a husband or a father or a friend. When 30,000 Israelites die, everybody's grieving. This is devastating news. They have no hope at all. And now without God's presence, they're going to be slaves again. Not in Egypt, but in the promised land. How are we going to be slaves in the promised land? And the, the chapter ends with Eli breaking his neck. They point out the fact that not only was he old and blind, but he's overweight. And we know how he got to be overweight, right? You know, his, sin, his sins of his sons were grabbing choice meat from the sacrifice, and he was benefiting from it, all the rest. But the point is the people had allowed the blessings of God to be more important to them than the presence of God. And they realized it too late, and it was gone. It was gone. I kind of liken this to a divorce. Now, I've never been through a divorce myself. I've, I've had lots of friends and family who've actually been through a divorce, so I've experienced it secondhand. I've counseled people through divorces before. And typically a divorce will happen because one or both of the parties involved take each other for granted. The commitments they made to each other on their wedding day are either broken, forgotten, or ignored. And so one or both of them succumb to, I'm going to do what makes me happy no matter what. You're just not it for me anymore. And almost always, one party is done before the other one, whether it's the husband or wife. One of them reaches that point where they're just completely finished, they're completely done. And almost always, it's a surprise to their spouse. Almost always, the phrase that gets said is, I knew it wasn't great, but I didn't realize it was that bad. And that's really what's going on here. But it's not God saying, I'm divorcing you. It's the people walking away from their relationship with God to the point that he's just no longer with them. They've taken him for granted. They pushed him away. So where is the glory? It's in the enemy camp. And who's left in your camp? bunch of would-be gods who either dead or enslaved. And that's the end of the sermon today, guys. <laughs> it's hard to leave a message like this. Most messages you want to leave on a high note, and I'll give you a little glimmer of hope here. But I want you, I, it's got to sink in, doesn't it? It's got to sink in. When you refuse to allow God to be a part of your daily decisions, when you're, you're kind of planning out what you think is best, and, and then when things go wrong, you blame them, and then you seek to manipulate. Guys, if you continue on that pattern, His presence will be gone. Not because He doesn't want to be near you. Oh, no. 
He loves you. He gave his life for you. He died on a cross for you. But because you're not doing what it takes to remain in relationship with him. We can sing every Sunday, God fights my battles. But if you're not fighting according to his rules of engagement, you're in danger of losing everything. So you yourself may be asking yourself, where's the glory? I hear that a lot these days. I I don't know about you guys. I'm noticing, and this is even in my own family, even with my own children, there's a lack of grace in these days. It seems like everybody just wants their way. There's no patience for each other. It leads to a lack of grace and a lack of kindness. You know how that occurs? When we're moved away from God's presence. He's not rubbing off on us so much. And so we start demanding our ways and our rights and what we deserve and what we need. And everybody becomes an island to themselves and everybody becomes a God unto themselves. Where's the glory? Where's God's presence? Where's revival? Where's... And that's the question I get. Where's God moving in covenant? I I don't feel it. I don't sense it. Well, what are we doing personally? Let me give you your glimpse, your hope here in this passage. The place where the battle took place was a place called Ebenezer. And I'm not going to talk about Scrooge. Ebenezer means rock of help. And in a couple chapters here, they're going to revisit that place called Ebenezer. God is a rock that can and will endure every storm. He doesn't promise that there won't be storms in life. Oh, life is full of storms. (laughs) But I want you to make sure that your house, your home, your life is built on a rock. The rock of Jesus. There's a big difference between having your house built on a rock or having a picture of the rock in your house as your house is built on sand. (laughs) Big difference. I think most of us settle for the picture of the rock in our house as we're sinking. It takes work to get to the rock. It means being in an elevation where the floods can't touch you. It means going through the hard process now the, the house on the sand comes up right away. It's fun being at the verge of danger. Where's the glory? Let's check out our camp. Is God in our camp? Lord, I thank you for your word, even the painful messages, Lord. I love those songs. Battle belongs to the Lord and God fights our battles. And they're good promises. But Lord, I, I think we've fallen into the spirit of the age where we point the finger at everyone else. We demand change from everybody else. We blame everyone else, even you, God, for what's going on in our lives. And we don't own the fact that There is sin in our camp. And when the world looks at us, they don't see you. 
they see a bunch of gods, people living unto themselves. Lord, today we repent. Forgive us, Lord. Forgive us for going our own way. Forgive us for desiring the gifts that come from you instead of your presence. Many of us are wondering where the glory is, have, has gone and we've looked at everybody else and tried to blame everybody else, but we've not looked in the mirror. So today, Lord, you have an open invitation to look at our hearts. Test our hearts. Bring conviction, Lord. I don't want to lose your presence. I don't want to lose your presence at covenant, Lord. I want this... This to be a place where the community knows that God can be seen and experienced. I want this to be a place, Lord God, where the people of covenant are covenant. So Lord, do your cleansing work in power, we pray. In your name, amen. As the worship team comes forward, I invite you to come to the altar.